he understood it's not just a lesson that you can just preach one message around and understand it. And truthfully, your whole Bible's like this. If you pour through your Bible and, and you and you pour your heart out into it through the years, you're going to find this word will speak to you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And and many years ago, I was working with a gentleman uh, named Tony, and he and I were selling security systems. And I told Tony, the Bible is like the earth. It's got a blessing on the top of it. So if you take the surface of your Bible, it'll bless you. But if you want to get into the deep ore, you, it's just like the gold or coal or oil, or you can use all kinds of rich minerals. You have to dig into it. And this is, this is a personal thing that that as much as we can talk about the corporate body of Christ, it becomes a personal thing. And, and one of the things that was really ministering to my heart this morning, and it was uh, part of the uh, lesson, Behold, He Cometh With Clouds, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to it uh, in Zechariah. Flip over to Zechariah and keep that in your mind, Revelation chapter 1, Behold, He Cometh With Clouds. Well, what part is Zechariah? Zechariah 12. And we'll start at verse 6. And keep in mind that, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, even the, and even those that pierced him. So in Zechariah 12, verse 6, the Bible reads here, In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day, the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadarim in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. And goes on and on about the family's mourning. Well, I mentioned this uh, uh, some messages back, maybe two, three, even four years ago. Uh, this, one day I'm reading this, and I've read this many, many times. I, I've, I've preach verse 10 many times that they will look upon him through the spirit of grace and whom they have pierced. Now this is a prophecy of Jesus and, and Jehovah said that was him. If I take this prophecy, they will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him. And if you, if you look at the, at the wording of this scripture, in, in our English language, it doesn't make sense because he, he says they'll look upon me and mourn for him as if he's someone else in one place. But, you know, I, I won't leave that alone right now. But the one thing that 
hit my heart one day. I'm reading this, and I've read it many times, and I had some other stuff hit my heart this time to dig out. I read that there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadarim in the Valley of Megiddo. Alright, what does that mean? Right? I've read this, but do I have any... This is how the Lord deals with me. I'm just going to share with you how He deals with me. Something like this will just stick out. Like, a, like you know, the old saying, Sister Shirley, it sticks out like a sore of what? Thumb. Thumb. Right? So one day I'm reading it and it just stuck out. And I'm looking at it and I go, huh, I don't know anything about the morning of Hadarim in the Valley of Megiddo. So what I do, I can do a couple things. One, I can just turn my Bible and move on. Say, I don't know. Leave it alone and move on to something else. Or I can begin to search. And the beautiful thing with, uh, with the Internet, with Google, I use Google a lot, is I can go run Google, and Google can at least point me in a direction of what Scripture this may link to. So I can take this and stick it in Google, and whoa, and that's probably what I did. But all at once, I, I, however I came across it, whether I searched it through Strong's, whether I put it in Google, whatever I did, I come to King Josiah. And King Josiah's story is in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And to many Christians, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is not that popular of a book. You know. But lo and behold there was something very powerful in King Josiah that God had to say. And, what, and Josiah became a king of Jerusalem when he was only eight years old. So you go read that and you see that you have a king that's only eight years old. Now how can an eight-year-old, I believe that's what it says. You can go check and see. We can, we can turn back there and see. But if we turn to 2 Kings, I believe 22, it'll tell you how old he was when he started to reign. And I don't know if he was the youngest king or not. I'm going to guess he might have been. So, so 2 Kings 22, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Eight years old. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So, so, so the Bible, I told you a few weeks ago, timelines may be important, but maybe not the timelines that people have necessarily shared. The timelines are built right into your Bible. The, ti the time that was of the kings of Israel up until the coming of Christ there, much of that time is right in your Bible. Much of it. Not all of it, maybe, but much of it. Maybe all of it. But anyway, you have Josiah beginning to reign, and, and one of the big things in his reign, well, the big thing in his reign, is when he became, you know, kind of mature, I think it was after 18 years, he reinstated Passover. So, so you kind of, and I, and I don't, and, and see, here's another question that come up in my heart. Well, when did they quit doing Passover? If he had to reinstate it, they quit doing it, right? You don't reinstate something that you've kept on doing. Well, why did he have to reinstate it? Why did they quit doing it? Why did all these things take place? It was because their heart wasn't toward the Lord. The children of Israel have wandered off after strange gods. And, and there's, a, there's a powerful, powerful word that's in the book of Kings and Chronicles because it, 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 it chronicles or chronology, it builds their history of what they did. 
And that history is so important because it's according to the covenant that God made. And why it's important for us to know this is because we 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 become Christians and we don't understand much of the time that there's two covenants that overlap each other. When Jesus comes on the scene, there's an old covenant in place and there's a new covenant coming. So we don't understand a lot of what the Word of God's saying because we don't understand the first covenant. And, and that first covenant is in place when Jesus is on the scene. The fact that He comes doesn't mean the second one automatically started. That's not the case. He was the offering that fulfilled the first covenant And He is the offering of the second covenant. So you could lay Him down in both covenants. He's the fulfillment of the first and He's the establishment of the second. So when I read Passover, Passover is speaking of what the Lord is going to do on the cross. And... It's important to understand that. If it was important to understand that, God wouldn't have uh, kept talking about it in your in your Bible. He would have just stopped. You know, it would have come to the the New Testament, and you would never hear anything about the Passover because you're in the New Testament. Well, the fact that God keeps talking about Passover means I probably need to go back and research and understand the Passover to really get a hold of what God's saying. Same thing with Pentecost. Pentecost, we, we made Pentecost a, a doctrine and a denomination, but a Pentecost was the second feast of Israel. And, and, and it's the same thing. If God wasn't interested in Pentecost, He wouldn't have kept talking about it. It would have just been over when, you know, when Jesus came, Pentecost would have been over and it wouldn't have mattered. But the reality is he kept talking about the feast through the believers. And and all these feasts had significance to what our Lord was going to do. And that's, that's what's significant about the history is it plays into what the Lord did and accomplished and the covenant that we stand in. And, and as much as we're going to understand is, is really as much as we're going to allow the Lord. I believe the Lord will teach you all things. That's what He said in His Word. But, but it, how much of it will I understand? I'll understand what I allow the Lord to teach. Because God is a gentleman and He doesn't force me beyond my will to do anything. How many knows that? You know, we don't get forced at night to make a decision. And a lot of times I make the wrong decision myself but we don't get forced to read our Bible. That's, God doesn't say, okay, you've got to set aside two hours or three hours or four hours a week and read your Bible and study your Bible, does it? But it would help you. It's like, it's like Brother Andy said last week talking about health. If I read my Bible and I study my Bible, I want to participate. I, I find out myself... Uh, you know, because I'm called in ministry and, and, and I minister, I want to participate more because, because my heart has been prepared. And in this story of Josiah, it's just that Josiah comes in, and if you read, I believe it's Chronicles where he lays it out, maybe in Kings 2, he tore up idols, man, maybe hundreds of them because they had built idols to just about every god name in Israel. So, so Brother why do I need to know that? That's why the judgments that were coming and Jesus was declaring to Jerusalem, that's why they were coming. And, and see... We take that what Jesus is declaring in like Matthew 24 and Luke 21, and I think it's around Mark, uh, maybe 13, uh, maybe somewhere else in Mark, but we take those judgments and we apply them to some futuristic thing. And what we don't 
understand is Jesus had come on the scene and who was still there on the scene? Jerusalem. And people don't understand that. And God had told Jerusalem, if you do this, all of these horrible things are going to happen to you. Because that was the covenant they were in. They were in a covenant of the law of the law of Moses. That's really the law of God. But the law said, in you know, if you do these things, God's going to bless you. And Deuteronomy 28 is one of the most perfect pictures of it you'll find. But in, in, in the coming weeks, we'll probably read through parts of Deuteronomy 28. We may hear in a moment. But it tells the Jewish people, Israel, if you follow these words and do them, God's going to utterly bless you. He's going to bless your coming in, your going out. He's going to bless your home. He's going to bless your children. He's going to bless your family. He's going to bless your flock. He's going to increase you. He's going to just keep multiplying and multiplying you. Did Rob the twin? But, and he throws that but in there. I don't know if the word but's there, but he, but but I, but it's if it doesn't actually say but, it's there. If you don't follow the law, if you go out and have false gods, I'm going to destroy you. He actually prophesies to them in Deuteronomy 28 of what actually befalls Jerusalem in what people talk about 70 A.D. He actually prophesies of it. The Lord tells them that all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. He says, he says he's going to lay siege to the city. Deuteronomy 28. And he tells them, he says, you're going to eat your sons and daughters. That's a pretty strong word. Because you're going to starve to death. So when, when Jesus comes on the, on the scene, He tells them there's going to be earthquakes and famines in divers places. Well, if I go back and read Deuteronomy 28, God told Jerusalem that. God told Israel that. And see, what, what happened is, is I don't connect the dots. I read Matthew 24 without connecting it to Deuteronomy 28. So I come out, Sister Shirley, and I read Matthew 24, and I tell you who's in a new covenant with God, you're not in the same covenant. I tell you that's going to happen to you. And that's what's went on for years. Preachers have put timelines about the coming of the Lord and you can, you can turn on your TV and I almost guarantee you, almost guarantee you, every week or every month, you'll find a timeline of how we're in the last days and the Lord's ready to come. And then that timeline will get blown and it doesn't happen like they said and then they have another timeline. They just had one uh, a couple years ago there was going to be a blood red moon and the blood red moon was I guess signifying this is it. You've had it. All these things in Matthew 24 are finally fulfilled. And Christians go on believing that. And they went from timeline to timeline to timeline. I've, I've re researched some of these. In, in uh, the 1800s, because Revelation talked about the jacinth and fire, and I'm probably not pronouncing the word right. There was a preacher in the 1800s, because Revelation talks about horseback, jacinth and fire. He said it had to be then, because we're riding on horses and shooting guns. Guess what? It didn't work. That come and went. 
2012, there was a big move that it has to be then. There was a big move that, and I think that 2012 may have been, was uh, no, the 40 years when Israel became a country was, what, 1948? 40 years later was 1988, and then there, there was another big move. And then, it, and because they understood a generation to be 40 years, and then they said, oh, well, that means 70 years. And so that because you can, you can find that in the Scripture, and you can parallel it, and so they said, no, that, then it's 30 more years later. Well, unfortunately for people, that 88, 98, 98, 2008, 2018, guess what? The 70 years has come and went too. And, and they take and create this out of these scriptures. What if they just mean, go together and mean what they meant in that covenant? And, I, and I, I honestly think, and, and, and I'm just seeing some of this myself, to be honest with you, I think the principle of the two covenants gets lost. Is that the first covenant had to be fulfilled. Everything God said under that had to be done. And so when God pronounced all the woes upon Jerusalem, when they didn't receive their Messiah, the woes had to come. And so, so all the woes in Revelation, I do believe, were pointing to the woes that were coming upon the natural land of Jerusalem. And not a future thing that was going to happen 2,000 or 3,000 years later. But it was coming right up on the natural land of, of Jerusalem because that covenant was completely being taken off the scene. Now, in the same mind, had Jerusalem received Jesus, and those that received him, they just moved right over into the new Jerusalem. Paul was a Jew, and Paul wrote, you know, physically he was a Jew, but Paul wrote the, most of the epistles of the new covenant. And what did he write? He wrote, he's not a Jew, which is one... Physically. Neither is that circumcision which is in the flesh, but he says he's a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the Spirit of God. Now, you just take that right there. That shouldn't be controversial because Paul wrote it. But... But that right there is controversial because people get upset with you saying the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. Right? Because people still hold on to this belief that God has a supreme race of man in the earth. And they're the Jews. And what Christians do, and this is Christians, and I... I, I I've been careful how I said this, but I heard another brother say it, and I probably have said it already because I heard him, and it gave me a little liberty because I said, well, Brother Lynn says it, I'm going to say it too. I've wanted to say it for a long time. And when he talked about them uh, selling their birthright, that's what I wanted to, wanted to say. Christians are out here selling their birthright to, to Jews, to physical Jewish people. Because here you are born of the Spirit of God. And when you're born of the Spirit of God, you're God's. No ifs, ands, or buts. You just got born of the Spirit of God. You are the seed of Christ. But then you walk over and you look at a natural man. That's what he is, natural. And says, you're God's chosen people. Your birthright, you're born into Christ. You're by the Spirit. So if I'm born into Christ by the Spirit, that makes me God's people. Or us, not me. But I mean all those born in the Spirit, that makes them God's people. So it's no longer, like Paul said, a Jew is 
of the flesh, but it's of the Spirit. So God's choosing is no longer of the flesh, but of the Spirit. It's that simple. Now, what, what happens when I hear that, because I, I believe maybe my whole life that the Jews were God's people, and I used to preach that. I didn't know much about it, but I used to say that was their God's chosen people. And the reason I said that was what everybody told me. And I could go read a few verses of my Bible, and it would say so, and I'd say, well, everybody told me that, and the Bible told me so too, so I'm right. But I never read it in context to the day, to the time, to the season, or most importantly, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ brings everything in your Bible into context. And if I don't read it in relationship to Him, I don't understand it. So, so, so when I come over to Paul, saying he's not a Jew, which is one outwardly, and neither is that circumcision outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew that's of the Spirit, I don't understand that. But it's real simple. The Jewish people were pointing to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus was born a Jew. So when he come, born a Jew, and he come to Jerusalem, he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he's of the twelve tribes of Jerusalem. He comes, and he's born a Jew, and he comes into Jerusalem to do what? To do the work that his father gave him to do. How many ever read that? I come to do my, not my will, but I come to do the will, he said, of him that sent me. So the will of him that sent him, in, in Hebrews it says he takes away the first to establish the second. Now that's a mouthful. Because you can search for probably years on taking away the first. Now we can simplify it into two men and we say, well, he took away the first man to establish the second man. And that's, that's true. But it's a whole lot more to it than that. He took away the first Israel, Jerusalem, temple, city, kingdom, and establish another. Turn over to Matthew, I believe I want 23. I want to show you this. I said 23, I may need 22. Just give me a second. Well, I'm not finding this. I'm going to let Bob find it for me because Bob is good at finding things. But it's where Jesus tells them their kingdom is taken from them and given to another. And I thought it was 23, but in 23 he's dealing with the uh, Pharisees. 21 and is it 21, 23? You probably got it, Bob. Well, it's not the exact place, but what, what I was after was Jesus told him. It's 20, it is 21, 33. Here another parable. 21, not 23. 21.33, here another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen 
and went into a far country. Now, I want to stop for a minute here. In the book of Revelation, on into the chapters of the book of Revelation, you're going to find, again, treading a treading of the wine press. All right? Here's the wine press. And it actually goes back to, I believe, Isaiah 5, and we'll turn there in a minute, but it goes back to one of the chapters in Isaiah. Here another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husband them and went into a far country. And when the time of fruit grew near, he sent his servants to be the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took the servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of that vineyard comes, what will they do unto this husbandman? Now listen. They said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. They're pretty smart there. They got it. You know, what's, what's many believers don't get it. But the Pharisees got it right there that, hey, Jesus is speaking of us. He's, he's telling us because, and if you go into the, again into the book of Revelation where we're going to go in the future, what does he do? He talks about them killing the prophets. Who killed the prophets in your Bible? The Jews. Jesus just told them. He gave them the parable there, and he comes right out, I think it's in chapter 23, and he's, and he's as plain as plain can be. You're the ones that slew the prophets. So then when I read in the book of Revelation about prophets being slew or killed, and I attribute it to something other than the Jews. And I'm not saying prophets have been killed by other people, but this is what the Bible's talking about. It goes together. In, in Isaiah, I believe it's five, it may be two, he deals with this wine press. And he tells you that the vine is the children of Israel. Okay? And he says that he looked for grapes and he got wild grapes. And he goes through and, tell, and, tell, and explains what he means. He was looking for peace, joy, love, righteousness, people that would deal properly with their brother and sister. And instead, he got the opposite. Evil. All right. So when Jesus comes and deals with this parable, he's, he's, he's really just talking to them out of the book of Isaiah. And they get it. But he says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and I'm going to bring it to, I'm going to give it to a nation bringing the fruits thereof. Now let me show you who that nation is. Turn over to the book of John. I believe I want chapter 15. Because Israel is called the vine in in the book of uh, in the book of Isaiah, and I'll look it up here in a moment. So I, I, I give you the chapter. 
But here Jesus says what? Verse 1. I'm the true vine. And my father is the husbandman. Every branch of me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth much fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except you abide in me. So here's the nation that's going to bring forth the fruit unto God. Who's the nation? Those that abide in the vine. That's the true Israel. If I don't abide in the vine, I can't bear fruit. So no longer is, does, is God looking at a natural seed to get it done. Because what that natural seed represented, the vine of Israel represented Jesus Christ. He's the true vine. So, so if I'm going to bear the true fruit of God, who do I have to abide in? I have to abide in Him. I can't bear God's fruit at all outside of Him. Period. Nowhere else. I can't bear it in a Muhammad. I can't bear it in Joseph Smith. I can't bear it in uh, Buddha. No! He's the true light. See, see what Israel tried to do in Josiah's day and, and before Josiah, right, right, with Solomon. Solomon started building the uh, idolatry in the country. They tried to bear fruit unto their own God. Now, I'm going to tell you a careful thing that, that, that even today we've got to be careful with. There's a liberality in the church. You know, there's liberalism out in politics. Everybody that, that's a Christian almost criticizes the liberalism in politics. But there's also a liberalism in the church. There is. He's divine. So, if I don't abide in the vine, so he doesn't give an exception to anything else. So, so when, I, when I start looking at, at the Lord, the first thing about the Lord, and, and, and a lot of what I have prepared to teach today, and just, just like I said, I just kind of felt the Lord, we, we're talking about some of it, but we're going to get into... Uh, other parts later on, but maybe next week. But the Lord, one thing about being the Lord is just that He's the Lord. What do you mean? Well, that's said a lot, right? He's the Supreme One. It. Supreme. Lord. So, so I can't give my mind that Muhammad's okay. Because then I'm missing the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean I go and I'm mean to people. That, that's not what it means. They don't see what I see. That doesn't mean that. But what I'm saying in my heart, I've become subjected to the fact that He's the Lord. Period. And if I become subjected to the fact that He's the Lord, then I'll want to subject myself to His Word. Because if He's the Lord then His Word's true. I'll get subjected to it. I want to. 
And then when I go back into Josiah, that's what Josiah did. Josiah, in, in the priest there, in the story of Josiah, going back to that, they went and found the letter of the law. Now you're talking about church meeting. They assembled the people and they read the whole book of the law. Well, you can't read the whole book of, well, the whole chapter of Psalms, I'm kidding, 21 without people, you know, going, come on, move on, move on. Well, they read the whole book of the law. Josiah assembled because it was important. Because they were missing it. And, and what I saw in the story of Josiah that was so profound, he turned his heart to God. He completely turned his heart to God. And because he turned his heart to God, the nation turned their heart to God. He was the ruler. He was the king. So his authority was to bow down to the word of the Lord. Now we may not understand this, and I'm going to try to be plain. So, so when I come and I say Jesus is the true vine, I'm going to bow down to that. So the other vine that the Bible speaks of wasn't the true vine. I'm going to believe Jesus is the true vine. So then, then I'm not going to give place that the other vine is the true vine. Do, do you follow? So, so that old vine was only a type and shadow of the true vine. And once the true vine came, it served its purpose. That's why it was removed. And what Christians want to do is put it back. Christians. Not sinners. Christians want to go back and rebuild, for example, the temple in Jerusalem. No. Some Jews may want to. But Christians... They don't believe in Jesus, most of them. Many, many of them do. I mean, I mean, I mean, the gospel became open to any man. It's become open to Jew and Gentile. So Jesus opened a door that anyone who will let him come and drink of the water of life freely. You no longer had to be a Jew to get in touch with God. And by being a Jew, it didn't give you a special access. Did for a period of time. Even in your Bible, when, when, when the Holy Spirit came, initially, you know they were only preaching to Jews in the initial stages of the book of Acts? That's all they were preaching to there for a time. But then when the Spirit of the Lord moved, the gospel went into the whole world, to the Gentiles. Because God had prophesied He's going to take out a people from the Gentiles for His name. And His name means His nature. Anyway, I'm about to quit here this morning, but turn back with me to Isaiah uh, with the vine. I want to find that. And like I said, I believe it's five, but I may have to... That's five. Isaiah 5. He says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved have a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Okay. Now, if I stop here, where would that very fruitful hill be? It's most likely talking to Mount Zion or Jerusalem. And he fenced it and gathered it, gathered out the stones thereof, and planted with it the choicest vine. Why did he gather out the stones? So the stones couldn't stop the vine from growing, right? So he gathered out the stones, and he built a tower in the middle midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. 
What could have been done more to my vineyard that I had not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. And then here he goes, woe unto them. So here goes woes. Lamentations and woes. So when Jesus comes talking about I'm the true vine, this vine brought forth wild grapes. But if I attach myself to the true vine, it's not going to bring forth wild grapes. It's going to, it's going to bring forth fruit unto God. Now how do I abide in him? If you abide in me, he says, I gotta keep his word. If I abide in him, I gotta keep his word. So one part of keeping his word is just this. I believe he's the true vine. So when somebody comes to me and says, No, the true vine is the natural man of Israel. I keep his word. His word said, I say, no, Jesus is the true vine and, the, and those that are connected to him. That's the true vine of God in the earth. That's keeping his word. See, when the challenge comes, it's like, it's like with, the same way with the house. When the challenge comes and somebody comes and tells you God's going to build a new temple in Jerusalem, and I talk about keeping his word. I go, Jesus, you know what Jesus said, that neither in Samaria nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. For God's a spirit, and they that worship him shall worship him in spirit. I keep his word. That's how I abide in it. I keep his word. I'm taking what he's made real to me, and I'm abiding in it. That when the storm comes or a crying word comes, something comes from the outside and says something different, I'm going to keep his word. Amen. And what and what where the challenge will come most likely is in your own household. Right? Because our own household, most many people are religious. Many people are, are believers. But Jesus said, if you abide in me, and I abide in you, you'll bear fruit. Well, how do I abide in him? He abides in me, no problem. Okay. I'm going I'm to beat this one moment, or hit this one moment, and we're going to be done. You didn't think I'd preach this loud with you, this long with just a few of us this morning, did you? Brother Henry would have done it too, so oh, yeah. so be it. How did I abide in? All right. We how many believe Christ is in them? You believe that? If you believe it, raise your hand. Get you all believing it. Now how many believe you're abiding in him? All right, so as he progresses in me, how does he progress in me? I understand his word. That's a progression of the Lord. How I abide, stay abiding in the Lord is I keep his word. In the old covenant, I was keeping the law. We're not in the old covenant. How many knows we're not in the old covenant? So, so now when he progresses in me, 
And, and, and we're using this example of the vine in the house right now, and we'll use another one in a moment. And somebody comes to me, just like we've said, Sister Shirley, and they say, well, the, the natural Jew is God's vine. How about his work abiding him? And I go, no, he's the vine. Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and we that have received him are the ones abiding in him. But see, what you're doing then, you're ministering life to them. See, on the, in the other hand, you, you know, sometimes we take that as well, you're, you're, you're arguing. No, you're giving truth and you're ministering life. And it's the same way with the house. If somebody comes to you in the simplicity of this thing, they say, well, God's going to build another house in Jerusalem. You say, why would he do that? He said, he said that neither... Shall they worship in Samaria nor in Jerusalem? Why would he build another house? For you are the temple of the living God. Now see, I'm abiding in him. I'm abiding in his word. I'm staying in him. Now, here's, here's another one. This one's a hard one for us to swallow, uh, probably all of us. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Why get mad? You're still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You may not have acted righteously, but it doesn't change what He's done. And if I abide in Him, then I keep His word, and I say, Father, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Cleanse me from my unrighteous acts. I agree with you, Lord. I keep your word. I'm going to abide in you. Cleanse me from your unrighteous act, from these unrighteous acts. They're not your acts. I'm in you. You're in me. Now manifest what's here. I believe God will honor that. Anyway, just some things to consider. I'm done this morning. Anybody have any comments?